Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 132. We've got my friend Shannon Clark, who has just extraordinary expertise in the world of human factor studies. She's going to share her nifty career journey, as well as great lessons learned that you can put into play in your work, testing stuff out. So you're going to learn one, how to become invaluable in what you love to do. Two, ninja tactics for improving the validity of your ideas and career path. And three, how stress can prevent you from reaching the next level in your career. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we mentioned, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep132. While you're there, I encourage you to check out some of the other cool resources from the Gold Nugget email list where we take the notes for you and send it right to your inbox to the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course that offers tools for slashing through some of the waste in your work week. Here's Shannon's story. Shannon Clark is the CEO of UserWise Consulting, working to promote self-sufficient usability engineering programs in companies and the development of safe, usable, and effective medical devices. Prior to starting her own company, she worked as a human factors engineer at Intuitive Surgical and Abbott Medical Optics. Here's Shannon. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hey, Pete, how's it going? Oh, it's going so well. It's so good to catch up with you and to do so in a recorded fashion. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. Anytime. Well, it's so much has been happening in your world. But first, I wanted to cover just to break the ice a little bit. I recall from some good old days when you were living in the Chicago area that you have long aspired to have a company in the medical devices world. And you were originally planning on calling it YOLO Medical Devices, (laughs) (laughs) which makes me giggle every time I think about it. And I believe I showed you, (laughs) I showed you, I used, I created a case when I'm doing my, you know, critical thinking and communication training programs and workshops called YOLO Medical Devices inspired by you. Thanks for your input on that. (laughs) You're welcome. <laughs> so what led the change of heart or direction from YOLO Medical Devices to UserWise? Well, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess I have sort of had this vision. I remember on my USC application to college, I went to UCLA, by the way, I want to clarify that. But <laughs> on my application, I remember writing that my dream job was to be CEO of a product design company in Spain. And it's so interesting that at the age of 18, I kind of had this vision and it always kind of circles back to that one theme of this is what I want to do. And when we last uh, were talking about YOLO medical devices, <laughs> I guess things were starting to actually fall into place. I was getting that training and starting to get into the medical device field and intentionally specializing in human factors engineering. And then in 2014, I started really seriously thinking about it. Hmm, this consulting thing, I think I could probably actually do it. I could actually launch a company, if not just be an independent consultant. So I actually had a partner to begin with in 2014, and we wrote down 400 names oh, of wow. potential, potential names for our company. I mean, it ranged from very silly names, Usify, all the way to kind of philosophical names like Wallflower medical devices. 
which the idea is in usability testing, which is our main offering, we will observe users interact with products without biasing them in any way to experiment. It's basically a psychological experiment to see how will people interact with a product after it's launched and in the market. Mm-hmm. So the idea is you're a wallflower, part of the wallpaper, seeing what other people experience. So anyhow, we made this list of 400 names and whittled it down and finally landed on UserWise that had a reasonable website domain and it wasn't owned by anyone in the field. So I was able to trademark it. Right on. Well, it, it seems nice because it kind of quickly conveys what you're trying to do. And it sounds appealing like, oh, I want to be UserWise. Perhaps we should hire them. Yeah, exactly. So that's cool. Well, so can you tell us a little bit of your career story that led you to choosing to do your own thing? Sure, yeah. When I graduated with a BS in mechanical engineering from UCLA, I immediately joined this rotational program at Abbott Laboratories. If you're a listener and you're thinking about what to do as the first thing in your career or as an early thing in your career, I highly advise you to look into these rotational programs. They have them across multiple industries. And the one I joined was specifically in medical devices. And what's awesome about rotational programs or professional development programs is that you get to experience sometimes four different jobs over the course of two years. So it isn't necessarily internships. You're actually showing up to work. You are a working professional and an engineer. And then you get up to speed on a job. So my first role in the professional development program was an engineer doing research and design of coronary guide wires, which are used in heart procedures. And so I was able to, over the course of six months, learn everything about being an engineer, designing coronary guide wires. Well, not, obviously not everything, but I onboarded to that job. And the idea is that the things you learn in the first three to six months of a job, you probably get about 70 to 80% of what you would get over the course of two years. So it's a very efficient way to springboard your career and basically have four solid jobs over the course of two years. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so I'm always putting in a plug for rotational programs. <laughs> so there I was actually able to apprentice one of the world's leading experts, Ed Israelski, who is an expert in human factors engineering for medical devices. So I started to learn the trade from him. I learned about the regulatory implications of designing a medical device. I learned about risk analysis determining whether the safety of a medical device is adequate with respect to usability. And so that really opened a lot of doors for me. And I remember during that year, and I was in Chicago during that year, I remember working harder than I had ever worked because I saw this field and I just fell in love with it. I didn't know what it was. I had never heard of human factors engineering. But as soon as I read the description of this one rotation, I saw that this is what I have to do. Mm -hmm. And so I guess to give some background, human factors engineering is the intersection of engineering and psychology. It's an exploration of how humans interact with products and services. And it involves a lot of analysis, psychological analysis and usability testing. So we'll bring in a single end user and observe them interact with an artifact and then reveal things to change about that. So that is a product. And then we work with clients to improve the design. Oh, that's that's so good. Please continue. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. And so human factors engineering in medical devices also has an interesting flair just in that given industry because it's closely interrelated with regulatory concerns. And 
corresponding with the Food and Drug Administration. Right. So that's really interesting. So you, in your college admissions essay, you knew you wanted to do medical devices, but the aha eye-opener was, oh, wow. And then there's this whole human factors engineering within medical devices. Exactly. A subset of a subset. And I think I was clever enough then to see, aha, if I can work my way into a niche, human factors engineering in medical devices, I could very quickly become an expert in the field because there just simply were not many of them. 2011, I was able to very quickly specialize and become one of the only people at a given company that really knew anything about it. And so I kind of saw that opportunity and I thought that would be a great way to progress my career, to really specialize and become an expert in something so that I am invaluable. Oh, brilliant. And so I love some of the themes, like from a very early age, you saw you dug something and then you saw some more clarity and specificity in the pursuit. So there you are at Abbott, you're picking up some great skills and specialized expertise. So then what made you say it's time to make the leap? So I uh, stayed with Abbott for a bit, and then I joined Intuitive Surgical in California. And there I was a human factors engineer, and I contributed to the design of surgical robots. So that's what I worked on for about two and a half years. And, you know, this job was incredible. I was able to work on the most complex medical device in existence, arguably, Mm -hmm. a surgical robotic system. And we were doing the most complex usability studies with the most complex technology. So it's any engineer's dream. I absolutely loved that job. But I started to see that I was one of the only people I knew in the Bay Area with that level of knowledge, with that level of depth, and that I had successfully worked my way into a niche. I also thought about what gives me energy, what detracts from my energy. And I have to say some office politics did detract from my energy and Mm -hmm. it caused me to look elsewhere. I thought, well, I love going to conferences. I love meeting new engineers. I love learning about new medical technologies, even if they're not as complex as a surgical robot. I love being at the cutting edge of my field. And another thing that I do is I influence regulations. I really like sitting on standards committees and deciding What are our next generation world standards for medical device design? And I guess one problem with working in a corporation is that you might go to your manager and say, hey, I really want to go to this world standards committee and be a member of it and participate. Can I do that? What they might say is, no, you're too busy. You can't go. Or they might say you need to take vacation time and uh, you only have limited vacation time. So the very idea of having those limitations kind of bothered me because I knew like, hey, this is a quickly evolving field. I want to be at the cutting edge of it. I want to participate in these standards committees. And I didn't really like that threat of having to report to some entity that could tell me whether I could or could not do this one thing that I was extremely passionate about. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a really cool takeaway there is that it wasn't so much that you left your job because you're like, screw the man, I want to do me. But it was more so it's like you had a passion, an interest, a talent, an expertise, and you were growing and learning, growing and learning. And then you sort of realized like these employers are no longer optimally useful for advancing where I'm headed. Yeah, and sure, they could have given me a promotion after a couple more years of staying there. But I saw this opportunity to just give myself a promotion and give myself everything that I 
really wanted, everything that would give me the most energy rather than detracting from my energy. So I gave myself a promotion to CEO and (laughs) quit my job. (laughs) That's fun. Now, your promotion uh, did not originally have a CEO-style compensation, (laughs) I would imagine. That was my experience with starting my own business. Um, Yeah. So I'm curious, how did you find the courage or the game plan so that you could go ahead and say, okay, no more to traditional employment? Well, I did a ton of research. I would take vacation days and go to professional conferences. I had one-on-ones with a bunch of CEOs in the Bay Area talking to them about, oh, if I were a human factors consultant, do you think that you'd need my help? So I very aggressively kind of did market research and interviewed dozens of CEOs and working professionals. And I even volunteer consulted for a couple of friends companies while I was employed. And so that gave me the courage, the confidence to know that I could in fact do it. I could in fact be a consultant. And it also was proof of concept. I knew that there was a market there. Now there were definitely naysayers. So many people would say, oh, but if you just stay there for a couple more years, they'll promote you and you can very quickly rise to level manager. Or they'd say, you just don't have enough years. You only have five to six years of working experience. That isn't enough to be an expert. It isn't enough to be a consultant. So I kept hearing these things from people. But I think when you hear these recommendations from the naysayers, you just have to question, do they really know what they're talking about? Mm. Because what it turned out was a lot of them didn't really truly understand what human factors engineering was. They didn't have as much insight as I did into the evolving regulations. There were only a couple of us, maybe a couple hundreds of human factors engineers who really got it, who really saw the evolution of the regulations and where it was headed. And I was just jumping on that evolution. And that's what grew my company. Mm. Okay. Well, that's a fun story. And it's funny. This has happened a couple of times where I'm really interested in this story. But I also realized that podcasts that explore entrepreneurial journeys, there's many of them. And, and this one, we like to focus a bit more on sort of universal skill sharpening and tools that folks can use in any profession. So I've got to believe that as you're doing some of this usability, you know, testing, observation, exploration, you've learned a thing or two that really can be applicable for anyone who's trying to, you know, test out, validate, explore whether their new thing or idea is going to work out and anticipating some complications before they emerge. So could you lay it on us? What are some of your best practices and tools and processes that help us avoid mayhem and have more successful innovations? Well, I've already touched on one theme, which is I went out and I just did it. I tried it out. I threw it up on the wall. And at first I was thinking about starting a company that did regulatory consulting and human factors consulting. And it turns out that my proof of concept said, nope, human factors consulting is good. You can just focus. It's better to not dilute your brand. So Mm -hmm. just going out and trying it. So in the same way, when we develop a medical device, we will put it in the hands of end users to predict the future. And the key there when you're soliciting input is to not bias the input. And so there's this concept that we talk about a ton in human factors engineering, which is cognitive bias. And so that's the idea that you sway the person you're talking to or observing through body language or verbal cues 
Or an example is just being overly friendly. So in a usability study, when we bring in an end user, my job is to be extremely vanilla and not be their best friend, but at the same time, make them comfortable. So you have to hit this sweet spot and then observe them as though you're not there. So basically, if anyone out there is designing an actual product, put it in the hands of your end users. Don't do a focus group. Get feedback on a one-on-one basis and try your best to not sway their judgment or opinions. Another consideration is thinking about the way you ask the questions because the question itself can be biasing. Mm. Can you give us some examples of good question, bad question? So an example of a bad question is obviously, don't you like this feature? Isn't it nice? (laughs) That's like a really obvious one. So the way that you should phrase it is, Share your thoughts about this one feature. So it's a very neutral worded question. Mm -hmm. And I guess another more specific example is if you're evaluating, for example, a set of laparoscopic tools, you could ask, which type of laparoscopic stapler do you prefer to use? What size is your preferred method? A better question might be, how do you go about performing an anastomosis? And that might reveal that they want to use a different type of tool or suturing in the place of a stapler. And so by wording the question and making these incorrect assumptions that go into that original question, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot and leaving out this opportunity to get this really helpful additional data. Oh, I like that. That's so helpful. So now I'm wondering, when you talk about, you know, body language, tone, what are all of some of the watchouts if I'm just trying to collect you know, feedback on a product? And that product could even really be just sort of like a checklist or a Google Sheet or Excel tool or a PowerPoint template that's going to be used again and again. So I'm thinking that you know it can be sort of you know tangible uh, hardware or the physical realm, or it can be kind of more intellectual. Uh, folks are going to interact with it and use it. What are some sort of key watchouts in terms of my tonality or my body language that I might not even think to watch out for? Well, I think the first tip is just to check the ego at the door. A lot of these evaluators design the product themselves. And so they have a lot of emotion behind its design and they have their own opinions about how it should work. I might recommend asking a friend to uh, interview the end users or Mm -hmm. if you need to do that, Don't raise your eyebrows. Uh Just kind of sit there and listen. Be a wallflower. Don't interject with your thoughts or opinions. Or even if they say, oh, should I use it this way? And they look at you and they wait for a response. You could say, I'm not able to provide that information right now. How would you expect it to be used? That's Mm. actually my favorite line that I share (laughs) in usability testing. I'll say, well, what do you expect? Because yesterday I was in a usability study and someone said, oh, is this the button that I go to for settings? And they look at me and there's this awkward pause. And then I say, is that what you would expect? (laughs) (laughs) But then also that question can reveal what it is that they expect. And then that could unveil changes to make about your product. Oh, that is so good. I remember once I was with a buddy of mine who worked at Nike and we were at the Nike employee store and I found this backpack and it had these sort of grooves on the back where it connects to my back. And I said, oh, these are really cool grooves. Does that sort of enable there to be kind of airflow so it cools down my back and I won't have that sweaty back situation in the summertime? <laughs> and he just said, do you perceive them too? 
<laughs> I was like, that's your whole game, isn't it? <laughs> Is that the sales guy that said that? No, well, he did some product design stuff as well. And oh, so, I see. Well, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what you perceive it to? It was like, well, I do, but I actually want to know. <laughs> Does this have yeah, the... An engineer will go into a design having a very defined intent of the design, but you'll be shocked to see how many ways someone can interpret the outcome of that. Oh, that is good. Well, I'm also wondering, as you're observing sort of users doing their thing, how do you get them to kind of narrate what they're thinking and as they're engaging with the stuff? Is that part of the protocol? Do you say, hey, just think out loud and I'm going to watch? Or how do you get them to actually verbalize What's exactly. So that think aloud technique is the official term for it. And we will ask users in those early stage iterative usability studies, we'll ask them to use think aloud technique because it's the only way that we can really get inside their head. Now, a funny thing about that is that the FDA prohibits think aloud technique in a final usability study that's used to prove safety and efficacy, just because think aloud technique can be a little bit distracting and it does take away from the quote unquote representativeness of the simulation. All right. But for any usability study other than that FDA grade final usability evaluation, think aloud technique is a great way to truly understand people's thought process and even those close calls where they might not make a mistake, but they're about to, and then they catch themselves. And you can hear that whole monologue as they're about to make a mistake. And then you get even more and richer data. That's cool. I do find most people are pretty candid with that. Like, I can't get the darn thing open. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I did have a usability study one time where someone said, oh, yeah, at this point, I would throw it across the room. (laughs) 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 That was a good gem to collect. (laughs) Well, that's what I can see. It's a giant pull to quote on your slide that you report to the client. Well, so, (laughs) So I'm wondering, so observation is one sort of a tool in the toolkit. I'm wondering about the notion of, do you also use sort of surveys? And are there any pro tips on doing surveys well? We do surveys. And a lot of that is when you're in the very early phases of development, where you don't really know what the product is yet. And later stages, if you just have questions, for example, what percentage of nurses use gravity flow versus infusion pumps for a given product? That's an example of a survey that was done in the late stage of a design of something that I'm working on. Surveys are really helpful and they can be quick. So a lot of that ethnographic data, surveys are pretty efficient. It's also really nice to do phone surveys and get people's input by phone. That can be a very efficient way of gathering demographic information, information about the use environment. For example, when you perform surgery, is it performed under green lighting conditions or is it dark lights with white lights shining on the surgical field? That's something that could be addressed via survey. Oh, that's great. And do you have any sort of pro tools that you go to in terms of sourcing people, survey takers, interview volunteers, or is this kind of your own networks? I usually go through the network of my client. Mm -hmm. I consult on the design of all kinds of medical devices, ranging from surgical robots to widgets used to transfer medication in a pharmacy. So it's hard for me to maintain a database of participants. So we have processes to quickly find participants, but mostly I try to leverage the sales teams that are in-house at my client sites. Or there are individuals who have contacts other than the sales and marketing team, like 
first early stage startups, many times the CEO will have the connections. So there's various ways that we use. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, any other sort of tips or tools or tactics or sort of ninja goodies yeah, that you Yeah, another technique that we use is called task analysis. And it's something that I see engineers skip all of the time. So they'll design a device and they'll say, okay, this is how it works. These are all the features and functions. And they're so focused on features and functions that they don't zoom out or think about what's the individual workflow. So for example, you might have a device that's sterile, which means that only a sterile gowned nurse can handle it at the bedside. Mm -hmm. And then you also have what's called a circulating nurse who's non-sterile. And when you're an engineer working in a cubicle, you'll design this device, but then you don't realize that there's actually two people doing these different things. So it's really important to go to the whiteboard and actually map out who is doing what task at any given moment. And then I challenge you to think about what are different workflows that could occur within that workflow? What are alternative ways of doing this and alternative sequences of tasks? And many times that will reveal potential use errors or potential ways to optimize the workflow through design. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. Well, now I'd love to shift gears a bit. And so you've been doing your own thing for a while here. Could you provide a bit of reflection on terms of the employee world versus your own CEO world, pros, cons that you've discovered along the way? Well, I think a pro is that I'm completely in control of my destiny. And I like that feeling. I like the feeling of mentoring people. There's been some major wins over the past year as I built my team, finding awesome people to work with. And there was a really cool moment the other week where I had an employee say like, oh no, you can go to the standards committee in Canada. I'll handle the usability study. So she really stepped up to the plate and took over. And I was just blown away by that. I thought this is it. Like She really has improved a ton over the past year, year and a half and has gotten to the point where she can just own it. Mm-hmm. And so watching the evolution of people and the team, that's just really rewarding for me. I'd say those are some pros. Also, like learning a lot, learning really fast, throwing yourself in the fire. And then the cons are probably being on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, this is a podcast about how to be awesome at your job. And To be honest, sometimes I feel like I'm actually not awesome at my job. And something that I've learned to think about over the course of this evolution is, I don't know, forgiveness. Like, you don't have to be at your best all of the time. Mm -hmm. And if you put pressure on yourself to be perfect, you're never going to make it in entrepreneurship. (laughs) Sometimes an approximation has to be good enough. So that said, it is very stressful. It's stressful being an entrepreneur. Right. So the fire and not being good, you know, where's that coming from? Just like the sheer volume of stuff that commands your attention? Yeah. When I started UserWise, I had this kind of two-year vision. I thought, oh, we'll slowly grow. We'll hopefully be able to bill out a lot of our hours. But this thing has just snowballed so fast, it's hard to keep a handle on it, where we just have a huge client base at this point. And sometimes it's challenging to keep up with it with this seven-day work weeks and working 14 <laughs> hours a day, it can take a toll on you. Oh, man. Tim Ferriss said it was supposed to be a four-hour work week. What's going on? I know. 
<laughs> no, Tim Ferriss has amazing insights about how to get it down to that four hour. And I actually took him up on some of those recommendations. I hired a virtual assistant. I, I try to think about what I can delegate at all times. I pursue zero inbox. So there's some things that I do to try to cope with having such a giant workload. But I think right now the things that keep me up at night are just trying to hire those next human factors engineers so that we can keep up with this work volume and making sure that they're fully trained in the way that user-wise operates. Right. And another stress in my life is probably trying to find a bookkeeper, which is kind of, it sounds kind of trivial, but it's something that I've just been doing everything. And Tim Ferriss says, you got to delegate, you got (laughs) to let other people do some of these things. Right. Well, it's cool. Well, so I appreciate and respect that it is not all sort of, you know, rainbows and butterflies on the entrepreneurial side of things. There are some great pros, some real cons, and you just sort of weigh it out and balance it day by day. So, well, I hope that you get your people and you get some more control and R&R time in the near future. Yeah, I have this vision that I'm going to spend a month in Argentina later this year, and I still have hope. I have these things planned where, you know, I want to take advantage of the fact that I am an entrepreneur, that I am self-sufficient, that I have my own company. And why not work remotely like Tim Ferriss recommends? So Uh that is actually on the docket this year. It's so funny. We're talking Tim Ferriss. You go Argentina. So you'll be sipping Malbec and doing some dancing and or martial arts. And or usability testing. (laughs) (laughs) Not at the same time. (laughs) The clients won't like that. Nope. (laughs) Well, Shannon, is there anything else you really want to make sure we cover off before we hear about some of your favorite things? Well, I feel like we covered a lot. I was actually thinking like we definitely need to mention four-hour work week. That's definitely shaped my thoughts on working and being awesome at my job. Yeah, that's about it. All right, cool. Well then, could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote, something that you find inspiring? So I actually, my friend... Kat shared a quote with me the other day, and I actually didn't write down the quote, but it was more of an idea. And she said that if you are working your job and you're super stressed out working at your job, then that means that there's no way that you're going to progress to that next level. And she said that that was a source of comfort to her because she knows that she's awesome and she knows that she can progress to the next level. So it's this counterintuitive thing where she's like, oh, well, I can't be stressed out because I know that I'm, that I'm awesome. And I thought that was like a really interesting concept. And it made me think about, hmm, I'm pretty stressed out at my job. Um, <laughs> how do I get de-stressed so that I can move to the next level and become better and constantly push the boundaries of what user-wise can do? Oh, yeah. I thought that was a cool concept that if you're stressed out in your job right now, you're not going to make it to that next level. And the rationale underpinning that is you're stressed out because the current demands of you are equal to or in excess of your own capacity. Exactly. And thusly, you're feeling stressed and concordantly, (laughs) ipso facto, (laughs) you, you don't have the time to develop the skills and to strategize and to figure out you know, the upgrade. Exactly. Oh, that is a big one. Thank you. You're welcome. I've been a little stressed. <laughs> <laughs> I just got some more help. They'll probably hopefully awesome. get the job done there. So how about a favorite study or experiment or a piece of research? So the challenge with that is that everything I work on is confidential, but I'd like to share two thoughts. Like, first of all, 
there are 40,000 deaths here in the United States as a result of automobile accidents. So that's like human error related to automobiles. And here in the United States, we lose 210,000 lives in hospitals due to preventable medical error here in the United States. So you compare that 40,000 in automotive and 210,000 in medical devices. That's why I go to work in the morning. I want to reduce that number. I want to help to design hospital processes and medical devices that minimize lives lost and maximize health to patients and users. Mm. So I think that's a bit of research that I'd like to share. That's great. And that's why I get up in the morning. I guess another practical example of what human factors can do for a medical device, there was an AED that was on the market until about 2009. And imagine that this AED is on an airport wall and someone goes into cardiac arrest. A laser runs up to the AED, which is designed to be used by lay users, and they go up to the patient, they hook them up, and they're about to resuscitate using an automated external defibrillator. And they suddenly notice that there's this blinking light on it that says battery low. Mm. And they say, oh, this isn't going to work. I guess I shouldn't use it. And then they don't use it. But it turns out that they were misinterpreting it. It turns out that they could proceed with using it and they could proceed with saving that person's life. So that's an example where a very maybe seemingly minor element of the design of this AED led to the potential for a patient death. And so that's an example where in a usability study, we would simulate that scenario and catch it before it ever makes it onto the wall of that airport. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Four-hour work week. Okay. Um, Yeah, I got to stick with that. That's good. It's good. Highly recommend it. And a favorite tool, maybe it's a service or product or software app, something that helps you be awesome at your job? My hours. I mean, obviously Gmail is amazing, GCAL, but myhours.com is how we log all of our hours. Oh, great. So for your billing out to clients? Yep. And then Lucidchart is really good for making those task flows. Lucidchart. Oh, cool. Thank you. And how about, is there a particular nugget that you share with folks that really seems to resonate with them, gets them sort of nodding their heads and taking notes? A Shannon Clark original quote. Don't design a product that needs training. As soon as you start talking about training users, it means that your product is deficient. Mm, Thank you. That's the constant conversation I have with engineers, it seems, where they say, well, we can leave it like that on the user interface and then just train them how to find it. It's like, no, we're going to change the user interface. (laughs) Mm, I like that. Thank you. And how about uh, an ideal contact information? If folks want to get in touch with you and see what you're doing, where would you point them? Well, you can come to www.userwiseconsulting.com and fill out the form there. We don't really have a general, but uh, yeah, that's pushed directly to my email really. So uh, (laughs) again, it's www.userwise, U-S-E-R-W-I-S-E, consulting, all one word, dot com. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or a call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Do a T diagram where you have two columns and on the left side, write about what in your job gives you energy. And on the left side, write 
I might be confusing my lefts and rights, but on the other side, <laughs> right, what it is that detracts from your energy and think about what minor changes can I make in my daily life to make sure that my energy is maximized. Mm, that's great. Thank you. Well, Shannon, this has been such a treat. Great catching up. and My pleasure. It's oh. great to talk to you. Congratulations on all of your growth. And I look forward to hearing more from you and seeing you less stressed out. (laughs) (laughs) I see the light. I see the light. Oh, good. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Pete. This has really been awesome. And I'm so proud of you for making this all happen. I tell you, the thing that has stuck with me from this conversation so much is that piece about stress. If you're stressed out, that means that the current demands upon you are kind of at pace or above pace for your own personal resources, time, energy, attention, your capacity. And thus, you don't have the capacity to invest in developing the relationships you need, developing the skills you need, strategizing about the ideal solution or the smart, creative, innovative next steps. And so that's really struck a chord with me and I've already started to invest in reducing some of my ongoing workload from systematizing the approach I use to vet potential podcast guests and kind of keep above the fray of all the pitches and potential options there with some help. I hope that resonates with you and you start thinking about ways you can free up some capacity so you've got what it takes to invest in upgrading yourself, getting to the next level. So once again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to pieces we reference, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F132. And I do encourage you to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. This way you'll hear from our next guest. We got Lee Carraher coming back. She's boomeranging back, if you will. And she's talking about the boomerang principle and boomerang employees and why you ought not to have an attitude of you're dead to me, either to the employee or to the employer that you've left. So it's pretty meta. She's boomeranging on back to talk about the boomerang principle. You can catch her first episode, Millennial Mania. Back in episode 35, which I quote frequently, 72% of us millennials don't like being called millennials. Fun fact. And other implications there. So Lee's next. I hope to catch you then. And peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 